Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, Rockheads. This is Carl with an update on Music to Code By. On January 4th, 2016, I released the 11th Music to Code By track, Gold. That's right, there are now 11 25-minute tracks, including the original three. And you can download them all in one big zip file for less than 50 bucks at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1254, with guest Ben Hall. Recorded Thursday, January 14th, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks from London. London. Again. Well, sort of London. Yeah, the outskirts of London. <laughs> Way out. But the people that are the most upset about this location are the folks from London. But if you take the tube, you're there. But you have to take the DLR, and apparently that's a big deal. Yeah, I guess so. You get your Oyster <laughs> card, you're fine. There you go. I uh, got something really cool that you're going to like for Better Know Framework. All right. Roll that music. <laughs> All right, hit me, baby. What do you got? Dark food. Dork food? Dork food. <laughs> Dorkfood.pwop.me. Okay. Go ahead and you tell me what it is. <sighs> it's on Amazon. It is, oh, it's a sous vide temperature controller. Right. All right. And it's 100 bucks. That's a steal, because most of the integrated sous vide controllers are at least $300. So here's the secret. Use a crock pot. Right. Do you guys have crock pots and I'm not you know familiar with it. Bread? No. Um, all right. I mean, you probably have a different name for yeah. it because you do that, right? Or we do. I don't know. Well, a crock pot is uh, it's sort of an oval uh, aluminum chassis, and then you put this uh, ceramic vat into it, and it's got two, two or three settings low. You know, normal and high. Right. And you put, you know, your food in in the morning when you go to work, and you come back. You put it on low and slow cook yeah, it all day yeah, long. Yeah, yeah. All right. Slow Just cooker. Slow cooker. Slow cooker. There we go. That's what it's actually called. Okay. So you basically fill your crock pot with or your slow cooker with water. Yep. And hot water, and you drop this uh, line into it that has a, uh, a thermometer on the end of it, and it has to just sort of suspend in the water. Yeah. And so then that is connected to this device. You plug this device in into the power, and then it has a plug on the other side of the plug, that a female version, that you plug your crock pot into. So basically it controls the power to the crock pot, turns it on right. and off. 
And you have to have one of those crock pots that when you plug it in, whatever, you know, like a manual, yeah. a manual thing. So you turn it on high. When it's powered off, there's nothing. When it's powered on, it's on high. And I've used it, and it works great. Do you have this? I have it. That's really cool. I've, I've cooked steaks with it, and they've been some of the best I've ever had. Right, and so the, and the whole art of sous vide is you hold the water at the temperature you want the food to cook to. Right. Mm. And so then you can do it as long as you want. Exactly. Well, things happen if you go really, really, it really depends long on the, It depends on the food, right? Yes. You do it, and I learned the hard way, you do it with filet mignon, not so good. Yeah. You, because you, it turns into liver. It, you, yeah. <laughs> you, you can't do it too long. But the main thing... But you do it with something that has a lot of connected tissue, like a, like a ribeye or even a, take a sirloin. Heat. You can take the heat. But the big thing is you start, you run, you hold that water at 140 degrees Fahrenheit, which is perfect medium rare. Well, I would do it to rare and then sear it to get to medium rare. Well, you don't even need to go that high. I mean, the whole, the, the difference is, like, if I cook a medium rare steak the traditional way, yeah. so I get the steak to room temperature, which yep. is important when you can do it that way, yep. and then you sear it so that you get the center to medium rare, yep. you have every kind of cooking level all the way up to very cooked on the outside yeah, edge, right? right? Right. When you do this with sous vide, you've now cooked the entire steak top to bottom medium rare. Right. You only have to sear long enough to put some color on it. Right, right, right. So you end up with more medium rare steak right. than you would have cooking in the traditional method. Sure, but I guess the thing is, is if you don't, if you, do, if you bring it to too high, if you bring it right to medium rare and you sear it, now you've got medium if you sear it too long. It, yeah, you just don't need yeah. to sear for very long. If yeah. you, you want your grates as hot as they can be, so yeah. they're literally on 20, 30 seconds, yeah. and you've got all the color you need on it. Yeah, yeah. But the other, the other thing I find super convenient is I have a place where I buy my ribeyes, and they're already shrunk wrapped in plastic. Mm. So I take ah. them out of the freezer, drop them in the sous vide, yeah. and walk away. There's nothing to do for two hours. So you have a real immersion circulator? There? Yeah, so the only difference between what you're doing there and and the the three hundred dollar stick is the three hundred stick I put into a pump uh, into a into a pot which yeah. I typically leave in the sink because there's yeah, no yeah. reason to put it on the stove. Sure, and it actually pumps the water around, right? I mean, and that's the more expensive part. Man, right. you don't really convection will do this. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, more or less. It's not how precise did you really want to be? Right. But the main thing here is the water. Once the water gets to one hundred forty and you let it go long enough, mm-hmm. it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, It'll do the job. So that's really cool. I yeah. like that dark food, man. Dark food. I love. It. Yeah, it's cool. Who's talking to us, brother? Grabbed a comment off of show 1195, the one we did with Dan Willeen. We were talking about the new web dev stack, okay. and that included a conversation about containers, which I'm sure we're going to end up talking about further, and that's one of the reasons it stimulated a couple of really cool comments in this space. One of them is from a guy named Sean Daniels, who says, I've always had a love-hate relationship with virtual machines. I don't like installing Visual Studio on my main laptop, as I change clients often and need to align to their dev stack. Mm. Which, yeah, mm. I mean, I've often been in a situation where I work on more than one project, each with different sets of libraries. And yeah. if you've installed Studio directly on your machine, that can be a real pain in the butt. Sure. It's nice to be able to keep those things isolated. Visual Studio really needs to run on an SSD. Mm-hmm. And no, not all virtual machines run well on SSDs. Also true. Mm. And while virtual machines provide great isolation, they're slow and more like pets than cattle. <laughs> yeah. In the sense that they need kind of care and feeding sure, yeah. and so forth and so on. But this show, the show we did, did with Dan, made me eager to try container-based deployments or even container-based development environments. Yeah. Totally agree with Richard's previous show comments regarding providing development teams with a development VM. Mm-hmm. And that, that whole idea was it's a development VM whose rules are set by production. Right. So yep. you're configured like the production environment. And Dan's container suggestion seems like an evolutionist idea. 100% yep. agree. Absolutely. I hope 
that Microsoft builds tooling into Visual Studio and Team Foundation Server to automatically package applications into containers. I hope that also. That would be cool. And thanks for the great show. Uh, and you know, the, the step past this, and I bring this up because I'm sure we'll have fun with this conversation a little later on in the show, is getting to start thinking about containers as on the client side. Yeah. You know, right now, container conversations are purely about the server side. Right. But you start thinking about where we're headed in the client PC. Mm-hmm. More and more, it seems like every app's going to run its own virtual machine. We tried a bunch of ways to do this, so they all have problems. But the containers might be the way. Containers might be the way, indeed. So, Sean, thank you so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or any of the social media, because we post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. Absolutely. And you can follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We love him. Uh, one more comment about that. Mm-hmm. And that is Windows 10 already has a sort of a sandbox uh, a container solution for for uh, running win32 apps from the app store yeah yeah well and and we did this whole thing with Chris Jackson just about all the shim options and so forth there's already this idea right. of the operating system changes its behavior for a given app yeah and you even go back to Windows 8, just this idea of controlling how the app calls exactly, out. Like, exactly. We're, we're playing with all the ingredients that we're really talking about. We talk about containers. We just haven't made the cake yet. Yeah. <laughs> let's just go for it, right? Make that the rule. We haven't made the sous vide. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, you heard Ben Hall's voice here. Let me formally introduce him. He is the founder of Ocelot Uproar. Ocelot Uproar is... So is that like a more civilized way of saying Pussy Riot? (laughs) (laughs) That's where you're going with it. Okay. (laughs) That's what I saw when I saw it. It's like, Ocelot Uproar. Ocelot Uproar. That's a cat. That's that's a band. I love that band. (laughs) I I was seriously into Archer when I had to come up with a company name. Have you ever run across an Ocelot? No, uh, I thought one at the zoo. Right. I mean, they're basically wild cats, although some people try to keep them as pets. Yeah. yeah. If you own an ocelot and it's in your house, you have an uproar. There's <laughs> really? two ways about exactly. it. Exactly. Like, it's a thing. So, <laughs> well, at least it, hopefully it will be. When so you got, it from, you got the, the uh, from Archer. Yes. Which, if you've never watched Archer, it's hysterical. Okay. Uh, it's uh, awesome. I will, I will continue. <laughs> so Ben is the founder of Ocelot Uproar, a company focused on training and building products loved by users. Ben enjoys looking for challenges to solve, usually over an occasional beer. Ocelot Uproar recently launched Katakoda at K-A-T-A-C-O-D-A dot com, an online learning environment for software engineers. Ben tweets at Ben underscore Hall and blogs at ben.benhall.me.uk. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I feel like we do this every year, man. The first uh, co- well, hopefully we can make this into a regular occurrence. Oh, I, I'm um, pretty happy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first time we heard about containers was from you. First time we heard about Docker was from you. Yeah. I think hopefully that's, uh, that's a good thing to be uh, introducing into people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly has changed our, our conversation over the last year. Yeah, and, uh, I think it's changed a lot of people's conversations. Just generally, it's continued to grow in momentum since we last talked. Right. One thing that we uh, learned or we stumbled upon while talking to Michelle Rubastamante is that, you know, in a, in a world of microservices where you have these decomposed services across lots of little services, uh, it seems a, a, 
and then I, I don't want to make this sound like you're looking for one solution, but it seems a little bit um, opposite of the, the Docker idea, which is, you know, typically you want a Docker image that has several different applications or, or, or service providers inside of it so that you can, you know, have everything in one, one place. The, the benefit of uh, containers, obviously, is their lightweightness, and you can just spin them up and spin them down. But, but then, I, then I thought about it that, well, you're going to probably, what if you want an identity server? All right, well, that's a perfect uh, thing to spin up in a container. Uh, if you want, uh, you know, a, a MongoDB database, you know, mm-hmm. put that on a container server. So, so that's that. That's where I, it fits in to me. Uh, but we did have that discussion. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, and there's lots of the use cases and lots of different ways people are starting to play around with containers. So, yeah, one approach is to package everything up and you have one big, larger container. Um, but generally, the way that people have started to learn is lightweight is better. Yeah. So having very small, very focused containers which solve their job responsibility, perfect. Yeah. So things like identity server is perfect. Yeah. Right? You need it running in your stack, just have it as a container, pick it up. And I'm not going to disagree with you, it's better, but why do you think it's better? Um, wow. So the first time it's just kind of speed and deployment times and build times. Like the smaller it is, the quicker you can de- redeploy it, reiterate it. Put um, a move it around, scale it out, yeah. um, and scalability is also like if you need to scale something big, you don't. You only want to scale the bits which you're actually concerned about. Right. Yeah. You don't want to have to scale everything and which goes along with it. And I and I've done scaling both ways pre the container world, where we built VMs that were that were just the web server, and then a separate VM that was the application server, and then a separate VM that was the was, yeah. that was the database, and you scaled each piece independently. Mm-hmm. And then networking was your problem. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like you're problem free. (laughs) And then we've also done it where all of those things, and uh, you know, each of those could be elastically scaled on their own. And then we've also done it where all of the pieces were in one VM, and you just made multiple instances of those VMs. I mean, they both have merit, you know. Yeah, and I can see why people like it. I'm not going to say that one approach, like pulling it all in one container, is the completely wrong way to do it there are purposes it's yeah. just that for me having it all separate or small or independent just is easier to maintain easier to manage and easier to run in there's a real strength in the scripts are readable like your configuration is as short as you can make that configuration code the better off you are because you can read it you know what it is there's lots of them but you know and you can kill anything you want you don't really care exactly. the reason we sort of everything. the reason we sort of stumbled on this conversation is because uh, Michelle was pretty much saying that uh, in the Azure world you know their their service fabric is sort of the the answer to the the container uh, situation or the microservices uh, um, idea, and in that way, you know, spinning up and updating these services in a service in service fabric becomes really easy, and maybe just as easy as uh, bringing containers up and down. So I mean that sort of begs the question: Why do you need a container if you're just spinning up a single service that has no dependencies and or, or few dependencies. So obviously there's platforms as a service offerings and they've been around for the last couple of years and they have made life a lot simpler. So things like when Heroku came out, yeah. it really changed the way that people could throw software or throw sample projects and just have something touch real existing on the web without all of the firsts and all of the maintenance which we had before. You know, I don't and think we've ever done a show on Heroku. Really? No, we haven't. Ever. Nope. Wow. I mean, they had never been really Microsoft-friendly either. Yeah, I did a quick prototype of running Mono on top of Heroku, which was awesome at the time, because it's like you could run .NET 
like stuff like Nancy FX on Haruku and it was right. awesome um, but yeah it never really took hold and mm. for production usage I think it was always a bit like you're right it's not a Microsoft friendly it's, yeah there it's was no different get to Heroku from studio so the, but they really pioneered continuous delivery I think like when you think about the original incarnations of I'm putting up a build every few hours like that always worked in Heroku yes before um, anybody else and I they think. started to then because they made um, deployment more or less of a concern it's just a sort of more of a non-event practice. yeah it did introduce the patterns like, oh, you can do this more frequently. Yeah. And other people and were doing it. And the other advantages sort of fall out of that. Exactly. Other people were doing it. They just brought it more, they made it more available to the wider audience. Yeah. And you didn't have to have such an overhead and a team to help you. Mm-hmm. It was so there as a service. Your point about platform as a service making it a lot easier, like when Heroku came around. Um, this, uh, this idea that Azure has about service fabric, you know, this, does this have legs is what I'm saying, you know, and, and uh, it's a different approach, I suppose, but... Uh, it's kind of taken on the same uh, principles, I guess, and it's kind of uh, the next evolution. I, I'm not completely familiar with the Azure offerings. There's lots and people seem to love them, so that's great, um, but I, I don't use it myself because, um, so for me... Deploying something, building something and deploying it into a container is a very straightforward, simple approach because it is a, you have your Docker file and that defines the instructions of how you set everything up and um, how it's configured. You build it and then you push it to a service. But how, is it, how easy is it to scale that up, you know, when you have multiple uh, services or multiple, multiple instances of that and then you want to sort of do some... Uh, Round robin kind of uh, you know yeah stuff so, in front um, scaling has definitely become a lot simpler um, and I think as the community has matured so as the tooling and so as approaches and so as how people are solving those particular problem problems yeah. and so there's a really cool container called Nginx Proxy and it basically sits on the front end and it listens to all inbound HTTP requests mm-hmm. and then that will load balance between different containers on your host yeah. and so it'll manage the routing it'll manage if you want to load balance like Node.js it's single threaded but you can load balance and spin up multiple containers and it, you have a nice multi-threaded more um, optimization of your resources and your host and so that's made it a lot simpler of scaling right. out on a host and then there's a tooling which will help you scale out that to multiple different machines and I, I guess it's a matter of how much control you want, right? Exactly. And I, yeah. I like control. Um, I, yes. like, I love DigitalOcean. I think it's an amazing platform. It's very simple to get a droplet, like a virtual machine hosted in the cloud. Um, it's awesomely quick, very fast. And it, it's kind of taken that need for me at least. I can manage it myself. I can look after my own things. And I like that flexibility. Hey, Rockheads. As Richard and I travel the world for the Azure World Tour, we're telling people all about our dev-centric friends at Stackify. They've been awarded PC Magazine Editor's Choice for Application Performance Management, stating, and I quote, The depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshine the other products in this category, end quote. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM Plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers, which is why PCMag's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free, and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. 
just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So you think that, and then not to throw stereotypes around here, but I will. Um, do you think that that's like a, an attribute of the Linux community in general? Is that, uh, you know, the control over everything else? We like, we like to have uh, layered and composed things that we can dive into at the lowest level if we need to. Yeah, I think the Linux community has always been around uh, being very modular and kind of plugging in the best of breed and kind of taking what works and right. running with it. Like and black embracing boxes it. are not allowed, basically, right? Yeah, it's just, and I think they like embracing that because they want to use the best tooling and sure. they want to use whatever's working. And, and if something stops working, they want to get rid of it and put exactly. something else in. And, th- like, software development is always evolving, so why... Stick yeah. yourself and why what's force yourself best just, at any given time? Change, you know, chips all the time. So being exactly. able to flip those modules around. Yeah. And so there's like, a do-it-yourself kind of uh, attitude there, I think, that permeates. I think it's just that you're not locked in and you're not... If you want to change something and if you want to do something slightly differently, then you can go ahead and do that. And some people love that and some people are like, I don't care. I just right. want... Give I just me want my to, stack. Exactly. <laughs> some, someone just wants to point a package... Yeah. Uh, a service and yeah. go look sort it out for me yeah. and that's why it's great having yeah. platforms like Azure because it solves that problem for people who want it well I mean I think all of the clouds have gone that way of having a comprehensive service offering exactly it's just a question of what pieces did you want to use yeah you know? and um, you can slide up and slide down as your requirements yeah. fit and yeah when, it, when, it, when I started scaling with a slider graphic I was like you know, this used to be harder. <laughs> Pulling the knob up. Yeah. Turn the knob. That'll be $500. Please. There you go. Yeah. 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 Um, so now that we're sort of a year into containers, uh, or at least we are anyway, and Richard and I, um, you know, now we're, we're starting to think about how best to use containers, not just that we use them, but how. And it, uh, talking to Mark Rendell that year was amazing, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Because like of his... His uh, almost Rube Goldberg kind of way that he's got all these things. That he's like on the Starship Enterprise, you know. He presses a button and millions of things happen and things spin up. And listening to that was just like blowing my mind. But I guess, you know, um, now we're talking about how do we use these things together in these patterns. Exactly. And I think um, 2015, so just after we talked, it was a lot. The buzz continued and everyone was getting more and more excited. Yeah. Docker as a platform kind of matured and it like they resolved some of the issues they added some necessary features and it had a much stronger foundation and now I think in 2016 we're going to start seeing more okay let's let's remove the hype let's remove the buzz how do we actually run these properly at scale in production right and how do we start communicating and talking about it and just like um not completely reinventing the wheel every single time we need to go to a new project. It's like, there's, this is the approach and this is what is working properly and we can just take that and win with it 
It sort of leads to the back to the conversation about how many containers are we using here? How small, how granular do you want them yeah. to be? And I think that's, it's those kind of things which are now formalizing within the community and so that people coming in can just go, right, okay. There's so a you reason see why. some sort of standard patterns that people are using? So I don't, so uh, I've launched a website or I'm launching a website called containerpatterns.com and container patterns, I think it's just a way to formalize some conversations and some conventions. Mm -hmm. I don't think a pattern should ever be like, this is the way you do it, yeah. and it's very fixed, and like that's the only way to do it. It's only, not Only a Sith speaks in absolutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I think that would be very harmful to the community to say, like, this is it. But I think it's also important that when you're coming into it, it's good to have some reference points and just like something like, oh, right, of yeah. course, that makes a lot more sense than what we were doing. And some like variations and just like seeing an insight into how people are yeah. deploying it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I want to start aggregating and talking about like the best patterns and how it actually works and the touch points and the errors what people have done and why it didn't work and trying to highlight those so people don't Sure. Hit them themselves. Well, it'd be nice to have one place to look at. Here's a variety of, of approaches to implementing a given application with containers with pluses and minuses, right? Exactly. I mean, one minus would be it doesn't work. But, <laughs> you know, given you cast the threshold of functional, there are several choices there. Exactly. And, like, if it didn't work, then you want to know why. Yeah. Like, it could be something really simple. It could be like, an, an approach which you have um, not come across before. And um, with a, any fast-moving community, it's hard to keep up to what people are thinking, what people's approaches are. Well, uh, and, I, and I sort of mentioned this off the cuff when we were talking about some of those architectures, but I think a lot of folks stumble over software-defined networking, like actually defining tight relationships of communication between containers. Exactly. And it was one of the key points which I did a workshop on Docker here at NDC. Okay. Um, and it was one of the key points is how do you network containers on different machines. Right. And that introduces the software-defined networks, which mm -hmm. are amazing and extremely powerful. But if you don't know them, and if you don't even know they exist, right. then where do you... Or look? your reaction to them is just let all the containers talk to each other. Right? Like, you, you really want to define this idea of a clear entry point and clear exit point, like just clean, tight lines of communication. It's a security feature as much as anything else. But it's also an efficiency thing. You don't want all messages from all containers going to all other containers. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of, like, a better networking approach is one of the key features of the recent Docker release. Mm -hmm. It's just a much cleaner, much more, you can structure it much better. So you can start creating virtual networks and only a set number of containers can talk to each other. Right. And so it starts feeling uh, as you uh, as you suggested. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, now you've got networking as code as well, right? It's just another aspect of this configuration of code. Not only this is the OS I'm running against, these are the features I need, da 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 da, da but it's also here are my connection endpoints and exactly. protocols that I'm um, allowing. Yeah, which parts of my system should talk to each other and which ones do we want uh, restricting in a slightly different right. way, which yeah. ports are open, which ports are not. Yeah. It's all there in a nice declarative approach. Yeah, I think we, you know, I think the problem is as software people, we don't pay enough attention to hardware. We just think that network switch and network switch, right? <laughs> like, and so now you've got this virtualized network switch. You think the same way. You go, everybody's plugged into the switch. Everybody can talk to everybody about everything. It's like you don't actually want that. Yeah, sometimes it can make for a noisy, noisy chatter for sure. Um, and it's yeah. one of those things. Yeah, and definitely, you know, may, and and leaves you vulnerable. 
right? Like port 123 is a very powerful port. You should leave it closed. <laughs> like, it's a mistake. Right? <laughs> Just leave that closed. Do Don't not use the lightsaber until you have practiced, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but why does it work in Force Awakens? Everybody picks up a lightsaber. They're awesome. <laughs> Uh, thousands of years of practice. I there guess. you go. Talk me through a pattern here then, Ben. What do you yeah. see that works? Uh, okay, so I think one of the most important things to remember is like the immut- immutability pattern. Okay. And it's like um, once a container had, or once a Docker image had been built, that's it. It did not change. You don't go in and you don't start tweaking it and you don't start Thou shalt it. not update the container. Exactly. Make well, a new one. Does that mean if yeah. you need a configuration setting, you don't change it? So sometimes with configuration, you can store it outside the host. Um, and so you have your base image, which has got all of your software and it's got all of your dependencies and everything it needs to run. And then you can, um, maybe that's got like default configuration, but then you can uh, drop in overrides and options based on your environment. So sometimes okay. like... So you do that when you go to deploy it? Yeah, it's an infrastructure concern. I because see. sometimes you're deploying the image into staging, mm-hmm. which will talk to a different database got and it. a different setting and different sense. passwords. Yep. And then you, you don't want to change what you just deployed into staging just because you're updating the... Uh, password or the IP address or something sure. like that. You that just want that to be a deployment concern, and so that lives on the outside. Yeah. Um, and then all of your software and your containers and your deployment is consistent and reliable, and you know that you, you're a lot more confident that what you tested and deployed is actually what's in production. Sure. I also think from a DevOps perspective, it's like you're circumventing configuration of code as soon as you have an update dependency inside of a container. The whole point about having that configuration file is this is the truth. Exactly. Right? Then you suddenly have a Word document that says there. It says, after you run that, then do this. Yes. The errata so, document. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's such makes, a bad idea. It makes you think about you know, the, where you get your containers from kind of matters. You know, Bob's dis- discount container <laughs> website.com. <laughs> Uh, I may have, hold on, I may have just registered that. <laughs> <laughs> probably not a good idea. <laughs> hey, it's been on Donna Rocks. It's famous now, so uh, it's free marketing. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I totally buy immutability as a key pattern. Yeah, and I think the last, like, as we mentioned at the start, like Snowflake VMs and virtual machines were bad. Snowflake containers is really not something which we want to start okay. introducing. Snowflake? Uh, so, unique. Right. So it's everyone is slightly different in a Every, slightly so yeah, different way. Slightly different is really kind of evil. Yeah. Yeah. You want them all to be the same, kill them and build them. And so we should leave Mark Rendell away from them then. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, this has not been blessed by Mark Rendell yet. Yeah. All right. So okay. yeah, consistent pattern, consistency across those things so you can build them up and knock them down. And, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's like a guiding principle when people are getting started, it's that thing to keep in mind and that's why you think like the docker file is so important because yes. that is the list of instructions which says how you build this container this yeah. so if you want to rebuild it it's right there yeah. you don't have to log in and manually execute the commands yeah you never you never ever want to do that no. so and I, I mean I've found this for years now living in a virtualized world it's like I don't update anything anymore I build a new VM mm. yeah. and then I shift the workload to the new VM and then I kill the old VM exactly and containers are just a much quicker way of doing that yeah it's just a different way of managing processes yeah. Um, and it, for me, a lot lighter way and a lot simpler, but the guiding principles still are consistent, I'd say. Yeah. There's a, is there a large community of containers, shared containers, basically, in the, in the Docker world? Um, so 
in terms of if you mean like um, shared base images and yeah, um, yeah, like base image stuff. Yeah, yeah. so the um, there's a Docker registry um, available at hub.docker.com, and that has a lot of the blessed official images. Got it. Um, and so they have got a great collection. So if you want to take things like Elasticsearch or Redis or uh, MongoDB, mm-hmm. then they're already pre-configured, they're already pre-built, and they're just there off the shelf. So you can just go Docker run Redis, and you have your Redis instance process um, launched. All right. And alongside that, the community can push their own images. Um, so things like Identity Server, mm-hmm. If Dominic hasn't pushed it already, there probably is an identity server image configured that you can just download and then run. I, I'm checking right now. I want to know. Yeah, right. <laughs> if there's not, I'll, po- I'll poke him and probably uh, give yeah, them a yeah. Docker file. Yeah, well, it wasn't at the top of the list, but uh, I'm sure they're not, I'm sure they I'm sure there is a Docker file in that GitHub repository so you can yeah, download him. Yeah, probably. Well, there's um, more to that conversation. But first, Richard, you know what time it is now? It uh, must be that happy time again. Absolutely, yes. It's time to replace my bathtub container with a spa container. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> spa. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! Did you Wait just double pun that? I think I double punned it, but I didn't intend to. Oh yes, I did. Uh, it's actually time to give away "Music to Code by" collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. "Music to Code by," of course, is a set of twenty-five minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals, specifically designed to promote focus. Neither distracting nor boring. It will get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with Music to Code By. See what all the fuss is about. Go to musictocodeby.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Greg Boxer. Hi, congratulations, Greg. Golf yeah, clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, sir. You won 11. That's right. That's what we're up to now, 11 tracks. Actually, by the time this comes out, it might be 12. Wow. But, uh, yeah, he won 11 anyway It's uh, uh, at Music to Code By. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you've got to sign up to win, and now it's your turn, Ben. If you had $5,000 U.S. to spend... On technology today, what would you buy? Uh, it's a really tough question, um, and I have been thinking about it. So last year or last time I was on, I think it was like virtual reality headsets and stuff mm. like that, and like that's still awesome, and that's still got a huge amount of potential. And I yeah. still haven't got one, so like ah. that would be a starting point. Nice. Um, and also, I think the new uh, hardware from Microsoft is looking pretty nice. And there's lots of cool technology. What's coming out from that? Um, like that, for example. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> you're pointing at my Surface Book. Yes. Which okay. is, um, when it was launched, it's it looked really nice. Yeah. Um, and I haven't really played with Windows hardware and Windows for a while, so that would be really good. And with like Windows containers coming soon, like it it could mm-hmm. be useful to have a Windows machine. Again. Yeah. Could yeah. Be. I'm with you. And and it's, this the book just came available for pre-order in the UK. Awesome. Which means you guys have the advantage of all of the pain that all of us went through starting in October getting this first. <laughs> there were a lot of firmware updates. Like, it's gone through a bunch of twitches. So I suspect you will have an easier experience. Yes. But it's always the same with, like, the same with when Apple released their oh, yeah. updates and their mm-hmm. latest and it, laptops. It's always. And I'm the right guy to get a machine when it's brand new because I can, you know, I don't panic. Yeah. I kept, I brought my other laptop with me for a while just in case. It, not that the book ever failed me, but it, it was twitchy for a while. 
well. Yeah. The last set of firmware is pretty good. The only thing I think for folks who got it first, like I did, is now that things have sort of leveled off, I probably wipe this machine completely bare and build it up again. Mm. I probably get even better results than yeah. I got right mm-hmm. now. The one, the only thing that has really burned me a couple of times is when you shut this thing down, screen goes black, light goes out but it's not fully shut down, and if you close it there, it gets forced to suspend, and it mows down battery. I have the same problem with my MacBook Pro, actually. Yeah. I have to completely shut it down, otherwise it... I, 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 I put it, If I close the lid, and it hibernates whatever I put it in my bag, it'll, it'll, it'll fry it'll, my bag. Yeah, it'll, it gets very warm very quickly. Yeah. So, but I've also found that even though I do the shutdown, if I, then, if I shut down, as soon as the screen goes out, close it, it's not really shut down. Oh, really? Yeah, it takes... you got to get a little time. Huh. I, and I think it's actually the key... You, the, your signal is the keyboard lights going out, but in a bright room, you can't tell if they're yeah. on or not. So I've now gotten the habit of, as I'm packing up, shut machine down first, put away cables and things, leave yeah. the machine open, and then put it away. Uh, a question about licensing, because this, is, this came up before, I think, when we were talking last year, but I want to revisit the topic, and that is, you know, you have uh, Docker containers that you get at the hub or whatever, and the, the blessed versions of things with all these. Now you have four or five open source projects in there, all that have different licenses. Do you, is there anything that you have to sort of agree to before you use them? Or? Yeah, so there was a big, like motion on a few bloggers kind of were asking the same question a couple of months ago and like Ubuntu in their service license agreement they kind of say well no you can't can you deploy them into a container like what is and a few people picked up on it and they just came out and said no we love Docker and we want people to embrace it and use it smart people using their product exactly and so they didn't see it as a problem and that's what Hmm. that came from one of their uh, people, if I remember correctly, um, and obviously, if you have commercial software, exactly, you need to agree to the commercial licensing, and yeah. that's a separate thing, separate issue. Um, but I don't think it's it's for me. It's not a problem as long as you're like if if you're meant to pay for it and you have paid for it, then that's fine. Yeah. It's a bit of an issue when we break into Windows containers because obviously Windows has a separate licensing model and a separate agreement. Um, but Microsoft are foreseeing this. Mm. And so you'll download the base image from Microsoft instead of Docker, mm. and then everything will just work like normal um, to get around those potential concerns. But yeah, it's not something which uh, I've heard about blocking people. Yeah, well, that's good. Yep. So uh, some more patterns? Sure. So um, the one which I like are kind of sidecars and sidekicks. Um, they enhance other containers on your system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got your base, uh, like, let's say, your application, or you've got Redis or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's other containers which we use in production which um, offer additional services. So some are, like, backup. And so we've got our backups running within a container. Hmm. And it's simply the container launches, you mount it, you give it a certain directory. And so you, let's say, um, home slash user slash backup. And we mount that into a known directory on the container th- of slash backup. The container launch up and the first thing it does is go, right, I'm going to think backup directory to S3. And that's all it does. Right. It finishes it and then closes itself down. And uh, so it's not, it's not its own container, it's a sidecar? What does that mean? It's sidekick. So it's just basically sidekick. Um, a... It's, it is a container, it's just a way that I define them as a system. So they're like more short-lived and they're not running your application, they're just running enhancements to it. Okay. Um, and they, so backups, one example, um, which is really nice because 
when I go into any different machine, I know I've got a consistent way of handling the backup, and that's all working nicely. And we also do it for things like configuration. So as we said, staging yeah. and production will have different settings. So sometimes we have containers which manage that for us, mm. and they will enhance... Um, a linked to container and they will add additional configuration additional options based on what it needs so again you're not changing the thing which you deployed you're just enhancing it with additional right. options add them when you need to and it's something you could easily build as a script right that just exactly and it's those kind of little things um, and things like the Nginx proxy which I mentioned yeah. earlier yeah. Um, which manages that load balancing that kind of is you're enhancing what your additional sure. services are sure. doing and it's, it's just helping you get there and helping make your life a lot easier and I think looking at those and how they're used is often overlooked and it's an important way to think about alternative usages of containers you really do have to think differently when you have such a lightweight uh, thing such as a container that it's not a VM and, and you know, it's, and it doesn't have that weight to it. So, therefore, you probably use a lot more of them, you know, in a, in a really distributed, decomposed system. How many have you seen? Uh, how many uh, containers have you seen spun up in a, in a single application before and thought, oh, my God? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> when you break it down, it's generally... it's. If you think of all the processes which would run in a deployment anyway, it's the same. So you will still have processes like Redis running sure. and your database running and MySQL and node processes and .NET processes. So you, like, if you think of that, you just count them as containers instead. Um, my but then you're also pairing them all because you want redundancy. and Exactly, but you wouldn't, would want to do that if you could anyway. Right. So... Mm. Just because the container is making it easy and yeah. making it possible. Um, this, I mean, this certainly happened. In the early days of virtualization, this happened. Like, virtualization proliferation went, it went crazy. Yeah. We, we, we were going down, you know, used to be you packed all, as much stuff as you could in a given server to make sure you lose the server well. And Pretty everybody's... soon you got Brian Randall. Yes. Who has a huge laptop yeah, that runs like, like several thousand VMs. Yeah, it's know. all these VMs running on it. Yeah. So, so I don't think you're going to, you're not going to instantly go into a system say let's let's win something out of the container and then go oh look we've now got millions of containers let's everywhere make more like, containers yeah it, it didn't go like that um you if you want to win a website it's just one container if you want but, to win a database but it would, you know when i think of microservices in air quotes here you know as being the new thing i've heard of systems that have hundreds of microservices running all working together to yeah. to do something I, I take it from what you're saying that that's not the way you would use containers on a one-to-one -one basis. Yeah, so if you've got microservices and you've got hundreds of microservices, then there will be a container for each service, and that will be how you deploy it. But it doesn't uh, mean literally a separate container for each service, or would they at least be grouped up in, in some related chunks? This goes back to the original point of keeping everything small and right, focused. Right. Um, and so we, in our systems, we deploy each of our microservices slash I prefer to call them components, yeah. as individual containers. And it just gives us flexibility. So, for example, when we were upgrading to the latest version of Node, mm -hmm. we didn't have to install it all as one go. We could make sure that the service was happy, it was right. reliable, and then slowly roll out um, the updates and to all of our different like services. One API call per service per container, but a group of them related to a given domain. 
the way I thought of it was, and the way I heard it explained, is that you know, if you think of the class as the boundary of a service, right. right? So you could say every class that you have, or maybe the DLL, perhaps, I'm not sure. But, I, I, it, of course, granularity depends on your system. Exactly. And it, I think that just depends on how the team wants to structure it. So we don't right. go anywhere near that small. Um, yeah. Ours are just like... It's based on responsibilities. So mm-hmm. every service in our system's got a particular responsibility and it owns a particular part of the system. So whether it be security or scheduling or launching new environments, it has that responsibility. And it's not, they're not very big. They're probably yeah. like, um, like a thousand lines of node code, okay. probably. Right. Um, so they're, they're not insignificant, but they're mm-hmm. not anything. They're not massive. God. They're not, not a hundred thousand lines of code. So exactly, fine. which is probably what it would be if I did it. <laughs> the the uh, couple of years ago sure. approach, which would have been everything went one and it's really interesting to go back and think about how much the pain of deployment affected the way you build sure. things. Oh, absolutely. When, yeah. when deployment was horrible and you only did it four times a year, you grouped everything together. Horrible. Yeah, you as few deploys as possible, please. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you had to. I mean, when you had like not third to close. Uh, developer operations and you had mm. to go through that release process stage and like lots of manuals being passed backwards and forwards yes. I remember writing Word documents which detailed every single step and yep. you don't want to write those too many times no and, and, th- and they're always wrong yeah. they're always <laughs> wrong oh, yeah. it never worked I still had to go and pair yeah. with the operations guys and go oh yeah oh yeah sorry my bad yeah not quite like that yeah so I think these new approaches they've just made everything a lot simpler in containers yeah. just started to go down that talk about the disposable containers pattern so again this kind of goes back to once the container's launched it shouldn't it shouldn't change okay um, and you should also treat a container as it can disappear at any time so you don't want to be maintaining any state within that container oh, I see. Um, sure. you want to move all of that stuff outside Put it into somewhere like some other safer. kind of service. Uh, so, so, if you're dealing with like files, do you want to store the files on the host machine, not inside the container? Not inside the container. Well, does that mean no databases in containers? So you run database processes in the container, but you—it's like thin links. Right. Well, I, I treat them as like thin links, um, and so you say, right, when you're actually writing to when the database is writing to this particular directory. What actually happens is it saves on the host. It saves right. outside of the container. Outside of the container. And so when I restart or redeploy or update my database, I point it back to that same host directory. Right. And it's like, oh, look, I've got all of my data. So the database service may be in the container, but its files are living in the host. Exactly. And it's the same for things like um, if the users are uploading anything or if you're modifying CMS pages, right. then remember that actually that CMS lives in the container. Mm. And maybe you need to make sure that you'll keep in mind that container may disappear or you yeah. may upgrade it and then you may lose all of that mm. which is a problem which we've had with like platform of the services because yeah. like you'd have well, I mean also where you get back to this me- mentality of everything is redundant right yeah. like you really do I don't know any. I don't know anybody that runs Chaos Monkey, but the sentiment is good <laughs> that you should be able to routinely kill containers. Exactly. And not only does your site not go down, but it mends itself. Yes, it goes. Hey, we only have one instance of identity now. Let's go light another one. Like be, just that that attitude of of automated recovery, I think, is very powerful. Exactly, and it's so I put, I added it to the website because when I started with Docker, I kind of forgot this. Like, oh, yeah? I've been burned by it by so many times with platforms of the service, but I just forgot. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, I've just like, restarted and lost all of my data for the day. <sighs> like, uh, 
let's not do that in future. And it's, it's, those, it's those kind of things. Let's do it again tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> it probably will happen, but for a different reason. Right. Um, but it's those kind of things which, like, you hit it, and it's like, oh, yeah. yeah. And so that's why I think we need to start talking about some of these more reality, um, how do you actually use them? Um, mm-hmm. And it's just very small things, but if you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. How many of these things do we have to learn the painful way? So uh, a build pattern and a debug pattern? So the build pattern is, um, so if you've got thing, or if you're coding in languages like Golang, everything can be statically linked, which is awesome because you can go to a very, very small, like three megabyte file, which has got everything your application needs to run. You don't have underlying dependencies. Mm. Um, but I've got a mentality that everything should be a container. Everything mm-hmm. I do should live within a container because it makes my life easier and it makes bringing on and introducing new members to the team because I just give yeah. them my set of containers right. Right. or a set of images. And so what we do with build, or at least when we build our Golang applications, if we've got one container which knows how to build the application, oh, okay, and that will produce a binary, and then as part of the build step, we will have a separate image for deployment. Mm-hmm. And so we've got uh, two different containers for the application, one focused on the building produces the artifact and then that gets turned into another separate very cut down very small docker image which we then push to production it's a really nice abstract way to think about uh, uh, an entire set of software that has to run together and can't have any external dependencies a container is uh, it, it just it just fits the brain so well yeah right? and it's just it puts a boundary around everything and says that's the thing exactly and that's why um with, again, with Golang, I deployed the developer and the build tools into production. I was like, it created a very big image, and you don't really want to be doing that. It's just, yeah. it, it, it's unnecessary. Like, Golang, one of the beauty is that you can statically link everything to make it, as you said, a very self-contained small unit. So I think it's just highlighting and introducing that, yeah, let's just use two different containers mm-hmm. and have two different ways to build the application okay. and deploy it. And a debug container pattern? Yeah, so the same with all of um, any production system. Sometimes you need to find out what's actually (laughs) happening in the covers um, (laughs) and see what's actually uh, going on so you can identify problems. And this is where I have certain tools are deployed as a container. So things like um, TCP dump, I have as a container and I attach it to the network Mm. of the container which I'm interested in. And then it will start Um, getting me all of the network traffic just for that particular container. Mm. Mm. And then I've got other tools. Um, There's a really cool one called Sysdig, and it's like top and uh, mem and process lists Mm -hmm. and those task manager in the Windows world. It's that tooling, but more dedicated for containers and much deeper and much stronger. And it's created by the um, creator behind Wireshark. And Mm -hmm. it's then you can sniff network packets and see all of the network traffic happening on your machine. And he did it for processes and what's happening internally. So you can see all of the calls it's making, all of the uh, files it's accessing, what it's reading, what errors are being thrown internally, Mm. like huge amounts of detail. And when you need it, you really need it. It makes a huge difference, yeah. To deploy it, it's just a container. And one of the things you just said was, I attached this container to the network of that container. And that's something you can just do with some sort of management tool or whatever? Yeah, it's, it's just part of the Docker 
Just um, part of Docker? Just part of Docker. Is that, um, every container has its own IP address and its own um, network interface. And then you can just set, specify a flag when you launch another container to say, actually, link these two link and these join two. these two as if they were on the same So they network. see this all the same traffic. That's pretty exactly. nice. Makes hey, sense. There is a question around, you know, if you run multiple instances of containers for web server, you do need a load balance between them. Is it just something built into Docker, or do you run a separate container? Yeah, so we use uh, yeah. Uh, Nginx Proxy. Yeah, yeah, we talked about Nginx Proxy. So that's what we use for load balancing. Okay. So um, and so that's the same for load balancing. We use it for load balancing, the same application between... Um, uh, we use it for load balancing traffic to one of our websites mm -hmm. across multiple different node processes. Right. But we also use it to load balance multiple different websites on the same box as well. Um, and so that's for the host and then outside of the host. Um, so if you want to load balance across multiple machines. Yes. Um, the thing, there's other offerings where you could available. So you can just use an existing load balancer yep. like ELB, uh, Elastic Load Balancer from yep. Amazon depending if you're on EC2 or the Azure offering. Um, and there's also Weave, which is a great uh, weave.works. It's, um, it's like a DNS discovery tool, and it can help uh, communicate, two hosts communicate with each other, mm -hmm. and that can be added to help with the load balancing. Mm -hmm. And when you hit a particular thing, it will give you um, the appropriate IP address of where it should be talking. And so that adds and helps with redundancy. Right. I mean, cool. and it's really, I mean, I always want to go with separate machines because I tend to load balance first for reliability, later for scalability. Exactly. And you, for us, uh, we just have a traditional load balancer, which solves that problem for us. Right. Not everything needs to be inside of a container. Um, so you can't... It's, uh, it's, it's just a networking service, right? Exactly. So yeah. you can do it the way which you would load balance just a normal process and deploying it a normal way. The fact that everything's in a container doesn't change these normal existing patterns that we've... Do you tend to run your containers out of uh, um, Amazon Container Services, or do you, who do, where do you prefer to go? So we uh, have two different approaches. So half of our... Uh, deployment is on DigitalOcean, yeah. um, just because I'm I like their they I like their approach and their mindset, mm -hmm. and it's very simple, very clean. Just like give me a machine and there you go. Yeah, off we go. So yeah. I I like that. And then the other half is on bare metal. So we've actually got spinning disks. You're and, running your own hardware. Yeah. So we've gone that route. But uh, you're using this sort of cloud approach to your hardware. Exactly. Yeah. So I treat it as if it was an EC2 machine. It's hmm. just that I've rented it from a different company because of cost and yeah, sure. Other reasons. Um, I think it's a very important part that people miss often. It's like cloud is as much an architecture as it is a product to buy. Exactly. And like the cloud platforms offer so much and so much capability. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes like there's a lot of really good hosting companies which will give you bare metal mm -hmm. and you'll get huge amounts of performance for not as much as what you'd be paying Amazon for the equivalent box. Sure. So if you don't need the additional options, then. Hmm. Why, yeah, why no pay Amazon the additional extra for them to provision it for you? Like mm -hmm. You just go to a hosting company and they'll happily, happily do it for you. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple of others that we should go over before we uh, sign off the tool containers pattern. So this is kind of the same with um, things like the TCP tooling sidecar. Um, and sidecars, like these yeah. additional options. Um, but I have my tools, um, certain tools I deploy as a container on my development environment mm. just because I want to be able to move them around and push them onto different boxes and so I package them up. So things like curl, for example, I have a container yeah. because I don't want to have to keep download, doing an app, app get update and right. kind of sure. app get install curl every time 
because it just takes longer than downloading a two megabyte container. So here's an idea. I mean, what happens when the things in your containers have new versions? Do you have do you just update the containers? Exactly. I just rebuild the container. Rebuild the container. We could build the comp- container, push it back up to um, the Docker registry, and then the next time I pull it, it's there, ready and waiting. Are there easy ways to do that, or do you actually have to go, you know, piece by piece and figure out how they update themselves and? Uh, so that's the same with uh, kind of any build process. Um, if you've got interdependencies, then you need to manage that relationship um, for yeah. yourself. Yeah, true. Um, and I'm sure, I think that's one of the things which we'll start seeing is like there's really cool hosted um, continuous integration services now, um, but there's not that much on premise. And I think we'll probably start seeing uh, Jenkins, Team City maybe becoming a little bit more easier to start building containers. Um, at the moment, it's not difficult because you just run Docker build, but managing the dependencies and links could become more problematic. Mm-hmm. So if you change a base image, I want to make sure that all of my dependent images on that are also rebuilt. And I think there could be a way that we can manage that. Yeah, more I mean, right now, you're, you just got to do a look. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's a lot to keep in your head. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, you, you could... In the end, are all just configuration files. You could do use a tool to go, okay, I've changed this configuration file. Now show me all the other files that this would impact and go change them all. Yeah, but and you can, you can look over and you can see the dependency tree uh, based on Docker images and right. the API will give you all of that information. But it totally makes sense there should be tooling around this. You modify a base image you go, these are all the things that are impacted. Shall I do that? Yips, go to work. Yeah, and I think they're just, it probably will end up being a really simple script that you yeah. can just run and it will just tell you going, oh, shall I also run Docker build on all of these other yeah. things here? Um, but for us, we found out kind of like sometimes one gets missed and it's like, oh, yeah, I'll yeah. go off and It'll bite that. you later. Yeah. Okay, and finally, the, I think you talked about this a little bit, but the proxy containers pattern? Yeah, so this is uh, the way we do load balancing. Right, yeah. where, where load balancing lives, right. in its own container. That's where yeah. we, and we it, talked that, about that. That knows how to find other containers, knows what ports it needs to mm-hmm. be aware of, knows all of these, that intricacy details. Right. Configs it itself, and then it will just. Start. And do you have a, a variety of load balancing rules? Like, is it just round robin, or so uh, round robin's default, but you can do it um, in a normal way. So least connected, so it yep. will just go to the container. Who has the fewest number of connections? Exactly. Yeah. Do, you, do you do like a, a lowest response time, or? So that's just based on number of connections, based on what okay. we tried. Um, but I'm sure there are hooks that you yeah. can probably look well, into based I mean, on a, response. As a guy who spent a lot of time on load balancers, right? There's a whole feedback mechanism for the things you're balancing against, telling the coming back to load balancers, saying, here's how I'm doing right now. Yeah, and exactly. And if you move, so like, I use NGINX, but HAProxy has got exactly yeah. the same approach. And that, from what I believe, that's a little bit more, it can update itself and be a bit more responsive. The, the question is, how long does it take for the proxy to realize that a given server is missing from the pool for so whatever reason? When it's actually in a container, it's, it's I wouldn't say instant because nothing's instant, but it's rapid. It's like milliseconds. Pretty quick, yeah. Um, because when a container stops in Docker, for example, the process crashes, yep. Docker will automatically kill the container, and then it will instantly raise an event on its API. And right. this is what the proxy is listening to. It's listening to all the events on that machine. Right. I go, oh, look, something's changed. What changed? And then it will it's remove died. it from it's the, out of the pool. And it instantly automatically yeah. configure it. Which is, like, it's the best way, what we found, to detect errors and make sure that everything is up and In, in network load balancing in Windows, I happen to know it takes a minimum of nine seconds. It's sad that I know that number, but I know <laughs> that it does a three-second poll and it has to miss three polls for it to then redo the algorithm. Right, right. exactly. Uh, and this but, is why it, when, but when you've got page requests that are sub-second, like, it's still a bunch of page requests that mm. get sent to a machine that isn't there. Exactly, and this is why I really like having it as 
the event based yeah. because it doesn't have to poll. There's it no doesn't have to involved. wait yeah, for it not to be that there. Conversation yeah, exactly. Yeah. It just goes, oh look, I'll just reconfigure myself because something in the infrastructure has changed. Absolutely. Well, Ben, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? Um, not that much. So I'm focused now on Katakoda um, yeah. and really building that out into a product. So it's really cool. We're really excited. You can like learn Docker in your browser without having to download or install mm-hmm. or configure anything. So we're going to focus on that and uh, we're looking to fill out container patterns anytime soon. We're hoping that we're going to get the community to help us uh, uh, do that. Yeah. Um, so it's all open source. It's all on GitHub. So we're hoping that like we've, we've just put down the initial list and we're going to slowly start filling in yeah. some details and how you launched them. And we want other people to go, oh, you know what? There's this approach which we tried and this is our experience. And we want them just to send us a pull request and GitHub going, yeah, we'll, we'll love to have that on the website. Great. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. It's been great talking to you, as always. Thank you, guys. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.